Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast, and ours, too. I am your co-host, TJ West. And I'm Bridget Keys. Hi, everyone. And as I said, we are looking very much forward to having another great discussion. Um, so since I gave the summary last week, I'm going to put Bridget in the hot seat and ask her to give us a summary of this week's episode. Ah, so this week we are discussing Lovers and Other Killers, which is a really strangely different episode of Murder, She Wrote. And the premise is that Jessica has gone to Seattle to give a university lecture. And while she's there, she hires a graduate student as a secretary And he's something of a charming, charismatic, con man, pathologically lying, potential murderer. And has one hell of a shorthand and can type with unerring accuracy, apparently. He can type, yes. Um, And, uh, of course, there's murder while she's in Seattle. And, of course, she's entangled in it. And everyone she knows in Seattle is entangled (laughs) in it. And the big pressing question of the episode is... Was this secretary David involved? And if so, how? And if he is involved, what does this mean for Jessica's relationship with him? Mm-hmm. So that's all I'm going to give us to start. And now let's dive in. Yes. Yeah, so this episode, as Bridget and I were talking about in the pregame, involves both of our favorite things, gender and genre, since a key part of the episode is the dynamic and the quasi-erotic interest between Jessica and David. Mostly one-sided in the sense that David has a thing for obviously significantly older women um, that he seems to have a habit of getting involved with. And so that's the, maybe we could start there since that's the most outstanding, like, and the most pressing issue is his obvious erotic attachment to Jessica. Well, we, I wouldn't say it's necessarily an obvious erotic attachment. It's an obvious performance of an erotic attachment. But I think Uh, one of the questions is, whether he's truly sincere. Um, mm-hmm. And he he begins by just wanting a job with Jessica, but later tells her, "You surely you can see how attracted I am to you. Um, and we see Jessica really flummoxed by his charm and mm-hmm. his obvious appeals to her. I mean, she, she giggles a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. She loses her breath a couple of times. I mean, she's squirmy yeah and she gets very disconcerted by his because david is the kind of person who really takes a lot of um liberties shall we say like he lets himself into her apartment not once but twice and so you know and we see one of those rare moments where jessica gets actually angry like angry because she says david i've told you not to come into my apartment without my permission and she says i mean never do this again yeah and i mean what i enjoyed about that and, you know, you know, I'm a sucker for a good performance. And so I was like, I felt uncomfortable. Like, I felt like sutured into David's perspective. So authoritative is Lansbury's performance at that moment that I felt like I was being accosted 
and I also just hate being disapproved of. So I mean, that's maybe I'm just projecting <laughs> myself into this. Well, but there's the, you know there's there's an age differential between them. You know, mm-hmm. so there's the respecting your elders, uh, and then there's also the employer employee relationship, right? Mm-hmm. So if she's telling him to do something. I mean, he should feel chastised because she's his employer at this point. And then there's also the idea that she's the guest lecturer at the university where he's a student. So I think there's a lot of that sort of authoritarianness that she has over him that um, I, I can understand why you would be like, "Ooh, you did a bad. I mean, Jessica I, Fletcher's mad at you. Right. I mean, you know, I, I'm easily cowed by women in authority. In case I know. you hadn't noticed on this podcast. I know. Um, I know. <laughs> I am definitely the sub in this relationship. <laughs> this is why he's my best friend, you guys. But but it's also, uh, I think it's really interesting because she does have those moments where she really does stand up to him. Never mm-hmm. come into my room unannounced again. Uh, and yet at the same time, she also lets him kind of take her along for the ride. Um, so I'm thinking of the moment when she comes back from a day, a hard day of lecturing at the university. <laughs> and he's chilling on the sofa in her hotel room reading The Corpse Danced at Midnight, her first book. And she's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, I'm paying you. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I'm off the clock. I was waiting for you and suggests that they go out to dinner together. And Jessica says, I, um, you're like going to want a pizza and beer and that's not really my scene. And he suggests that they go for something fancier. And she says, can you afford that? And he says, nope, but you can cut to them in the restaurant the fancy restaurant yeah so she you know she was like i can't afford it and we should go have a fancy dinner together Uh, so i think it's it's fascinating to me the tension that the episode plays with whether jessica is actually attracted to him or Mm -hmm. or at least flattered by his charms and whether she wants to be off put by those flatteries um Mm -hmm. given that we've seen so little of her being romantically involved in anyone since the murder of sherlock holmes Right. And, you know, and I said, I alluded earlier, like in last week's episode, toward the end, I said that we're going to dabble in some noir territory. And I was getting, and I said that because we're getting shades of like Sunset Boulevard here, like the the kind of ne'er-do-well, almost shabby, you know, and um, effortlessly charming and sexy young man, you know, pursuing a wealthy widow. Uh, well, of course, Norma Desmond's not, well, is she a widow? I can't remember. It's not important. But he, pursuing this wealthy widow and clearly this is a pattern of behavior because the episode opens with the murder and robbery of another wealthy widow with whom David was involved. And so, you know, there is a sense like it's just a, it's kind of just lurking at the corners of the episode, but I got some noir disconcertingness. Yes. That's very, uh, you know, it's not always common in, in murder she wrote, but you know, this episode has some real sinister moments. Like when, at some later point in the episode when Jessica gets pushed down the stairs, like by yes. an unseen assailant, like there's, there's quite a bit of darkness lurking under the this surface. This is a really episode. dark episode compared to some other ones. Um, and absolutely those shades of film noir I, that you mentioned, um, which in detective fiction was a hard boiled detective novel. And the premise of those is that um, the world is morally ambiguous. You really, never know if anyone is a good person or that or mm-hmm. you know that everyone kind of isn't uh, mm-hmm. and I think we get that here a lot because people are warning Jessica to stay away from David she doesn't think he actually is a murderer but she doesn't know that he's innocent of any crime I mean she definitely believes there's something up with him mm-hmm. she says at one point he's obviously a con man and obviously a liar right yeah and so I have a couple things to note. First of all, 
there's the the guy the actor who performs as David. I, I can't I, I said to this to you in the pregame he looks like a gay porn star like he looks like a gay porn star of the 80s like of a particular like twinky rather fave variety like that's just kind of a, a standard trope within gay porn so I just needed to point that out well, I'm not sure that's tan and it has just some... sparkling blue eyes and he has as I said these are pretty much standard <laughs> operating procedure for gay medium porn length the 80s. blonde hair and he knows how to use his eyes and cock his head to the side and appear very mm-hmm. charming yeah yep as my boyfriend said to me, it's like, it's no wonder with like men like this appearing on TV all the time that we all turned out gay. Like, that's, just, <laughs> yeah, that's just the reality. That's why so many millennials and late Gen Xers are queer. But also, I also found it interesting that he could type like, what, like 100 words a minute or some shit, which inspired me to t- see how many words I could type a minute. I was just curious as a result. Yeah, so it's it's so he, it's, it's telling that even though he is a liar and a con man and a swindler, um, he's not conning Jessica about his secretarial abilities. So he... Right. He goes to the apartment before she begins interviewing students to be her their, her typist, her secretary, while she's in Seattle um, because he wants the job. He wants to beat everyone else to the job. But he has the bona fides. Mm-hmm. He can take shorthand while she's talking, uh, repeat everything back verbatim. He can type super fast with no acu- no inaccuracies. So he really does have the skills. He's not, like, right. lying about that. And I wanted to, to sort of elaborate on your moral ambiguity, because one of the things that stood out to me in this episode is how nobody comes out looking particularly good. Like, there's some misdirection, but as it turns out, like, Jessica's friend that she's gone there to visit, who has invited her for the lecture, who's a dean, apparently. The um, dean of students. Played by Peter Graves. Dean of students. Uh, has been ha- had an affair with a student, like, with a, yes. with a significantly younger woman. He had an affair is- with a student who had come to him because she wanted to find out how to get out of an affair she was having with a professor and, right, and which, needed his I mean, help. I mean, even it's, it's not addressed with, with the kind of moral repugnance that we would feel now, but one can feel at least Jessica's a little bit like, you know, and then it turns out that his secretary played by Lois Nettleton is the one who killed the young woman in question because she like, she didn't really go there to intend to kill her, but she got enraged because she's been secretly in love with Peter Graves' character the whole time. So, like, but by the end, David does... We still don't know, like, what kind of person David is. He's clearly, like, someone who's engaging with older women. The dean himself is deeply morally questionable since he's having affairs with students. The secretary obviously killed someone. The teacher is also having affairs with students. The professor's had an affair with a student. He's lying about his alibi. Uh, Yeah, we have lots of lying, lots of cheating, lots of sexual scandals. And I don't think it's an accident that it's in Seattle. Like, I think that the fact that it's, I mean, to go back to the noir elements, like, Seattle is kind of like a poor... San Francisco. Sure, but I mean, Seattle has a similar, um, not necessarily a status, but it's as a city has a similar kind of milieu as San Francisco, because Mm. it's a a port city, it's a Pacific port city, so there's a lot of, like, comings and goings, and Mm -hmm. an underworld that you may not necessarily be as familiar with if you're not from there. So I think it's no accident that it's a, a port city that this kind of thing takes place in because of its nature as a um as innately as innately mutable if that makes sense like yeah. it's just it's a place of transience really it, so well and, and we why... what we see of seattle we see the airport twice uh and so i think that that taps into the idea of the comings and goings that you're talking about which of course you know the, the episode begins with jessica speaking mandarin which as Bridget yeah, said, I'm so, not sure where she learned Mandarin. So, yeah, so Jessica, uh, so we open with the murder of the other woman, 
that is supposed it's a it ultimately is a red herring it's supposed to make us think that perhaps david killed her and is intending to kill jessica for her money as well um but he's cleared of that murder and it turns out that was just a coincidence um but then we cut to uh after the credits we're in this seattle airport jessica's arriving dean of students peter graves is picking her up and she's late because she's carrying a baby and he's like I'm waiting for you, and you've got a baby. What's going on? And then we see some nuns who are Chinese come up, and Jessica speaks in Mandarin to them and gives them back the baby. Presumably it's theirs, and they're, it, they run an orphanage or something. Um, <laughs> but so this is really, I think, a telling moment because, um, as I was saying to TJ before the episode, you know, Jess- we've only seen Jessica in Camp Cove once at this point in the series. So she's been traveling publishing multiple books and uh, presumably picking up a lot of skills and a lot of sort of international savvy along the way that she knows Mandarin and even is able to correct Edmund Peter Graves when he calls after the nuns sayonara and she's like they're Chinese not Japanese come on get with it which I thought was a lovely moment of racial sensitivity for the 80s even now like I mean many people many Americans white let me rephrase that white Americans will still sort of see a person of Asian descent and assume they're either Chinese or Japanese. Like that's just the mental map they have and they will make assumptions gross as they are. And so I I really enjoyed that moment of, you know, Jessica Fletcher calling someone out for being racist, essentially. I wonder. She doesn't use that phrase, but no, she doesn't. But I wonder, Teej, if is moments like that where we're supposed to see all the growth that she's had from the day when she Mm. was the naive tourist who got off the New York bus in the wrong neighborhood and got roughed up uh, in the the pilot, right? If we're supposed to see that growth that she's had as, um, in this episode anyway, almost a growth towards cynicism because, as you said, we see her get pushed down the stairs and she luckily survives. Uh, Side note, I fell down the stairs back in August and it took uh, over a month to heal and uh, I still have some permanent injuries so i don't know how jessica's even alive truthfully but she survived you're like you're like 40 years younger than jessica yeah and i only fell down three stairs (laughs) (laughs) um we also see uh her carrying mace in her purse there's a Mm -hmm. cut to a close-up of that and so the idea that she's carrying mace to me was really indicative of a shift toward a more cynical more world-weary jessica Mm -hmm. yeah i mean she's clearly like and that's a good, a really good point. And it's an indication, as you say, of like Jessica's by this point has witnessed several murders, but also her attitude toward the world is less, less Cabot Co inflected. Like there's less of a sense that she is this kind of homespun spinster and more now, you know, the globetrotter now that she's been here, there and everywhere. But because, you know, and that's why I think that the noirish element is so important because it's both, it puts her in that situation, but it's also reflective of her changing perspective on the world and the way that people are. Yeah. And I think going along with that noir too is um, the relationship with the police in this episode that uh, the woman who is murdered, Lila, calls Jessica to say that she can provide David with an alibi for the night the old woman was murdered. Um, And it raises questions of like, why did she call Jessica instead of the police? Um, and why why didn't David just tell Jessica or why didn't David right. tell the police who are questioning right. him about the murder? Um, why does Jessica go to a warehouse on the docks alone at night to meet this woman? Like, that's dangerous, right? And there's, very noirish, I should point it's out. It's very noirish. And there's just lots of 
um, things that don't make sense if you're a world that trusts law enforcement and trusts law mm-hmm. enforcement to do their jobs effectively and honestly. And so that, I think, also adds to the, the sort of darker tone of this episode. And it also just reveals just how shady David is, like that he, because it ends up that he paid Lila to to vouch for him. Like so, there's no real sense that David is an innocent victim in the way that same way, like that Grady is an innocent victim, or some of the other people and young men that Jessica encounters. Like they're all very clearly innocent and subjected to like the brutality of the police um, for no real good reason. But David is, if not guilty of murder, is still nevertheless a character who's himself deeply cynical and one might even go so far as to say amoral or psychopathic which brings us to the final frame that we get like that's a really important thing is the final shot that we get is of him looking at jessica do you remember that like yeah you you cut ahead Uh, i wanted to talk i but let's fine let's do it let's talk about it um yeah so we talk on this podcast often about how the final frame of the episode is jessica laughing and we get a freeze frame of her and how important that is for the sort of sense of um, moral return to justice that makes Murder, She Wrote feel emotionally satisfying. And in this episode, we don't get that. And instead, we get a freeze frame, well, a zoom, actually, a really tight zoom to a close-up of David's face, and then it freezes. And the last thing, do you want to say or do you want me to say? Go ahead. You could say it. Then we okay, well, uh, David has gone to the airport to say goodbye to Jessica she's leaving and she's kind of like I don't know about you you know sort of the way you are when you're um, trying to break up with someone and you haven't quite yet and then they're making a big Mm -hmm. gesture at you it's really awkward and uh, he says listen Jessica I think you know how I feel about you and she says no I don't nor do I want to (laughs) she's Mm -hmm. like I can't I can't with you kid and uh, (laughs) she says you might end up as a character in my book and he says as a victim, a suspect, or a killer, and she says, "I haven't, I haven't decided yet." And then we get the freeze frame on his face, and his eyes. Like, I mean, they're so disconcerting. Like, I mean, this whole episode has been of him being sort of—I don't want to say like a uh, a Ted Bundy esque kind of character, but he he does have that kind of like charisma and that charm and that handsomeness that we as a culture have kind of attached to the figure of the, you know, compelling psychopath. Like, like that's sort of our cultural way of understanding. And this is like a good example of that. There's, but there's something deeply, both beautiful, but also cruel and deeply disconcerting in that last image of his eyes sort of gazing. And it's hard to say exactly gazing how, like I'm trying to, my, my indication of my, yeah. of my words here is that I'm not really sure how to characterize it. Cause it's such a mix of like lust and desire and darkness and maybe even homicidal impulse. Like they all just seem to be Well, and I think also, you know, uh, humor that Jessica is so uh, yes, yes, befuddled yes. by him and also like disappointment. Um, uh-huh. It's, it's, a, it's all of those. I think it's played very well by him as an actor that mm-hmm. this facial expression, um, which is so important to how we ultimately read the episode because it's the last thing we see. And this facial expression carries this sort of vagueness that's open to interpretation. Right. And it's uh, it's it's Norwich, of course. But it's also striking that David is the kind of person... I, I, here's how I would put it. He's the kind of person who plays a game with the world and only he knows the rules. And those kind of people, which I'm sure we have all met before, are truly terrifying because they seem to operate in a totally different world than the rest of us. They sort of operate in their own kind of moral space, 
and I find those, I Frank, I as a person find those kinds of people, whether in the real world or in television, deeply unsettling. Yeah. I want to give a shout out to Bryony at Murder She Blogged, who calls David Captain Suspants, which I think is the, <laughs> the best fan name for him because from the minute we meet him, there's a kind of reassurance uh, in the way that, like, classic tv does that we know we're not supposed to think he's a good guy right we, mm-hmm. we're supposed to be suspicious of him immediately um but we what we don't get is the satisfaction of knowing whether that suspicion was warranted or not in the end right yeah yeah his his moral un, morally uncertain status kind of like owns the end of the episode and so casts a shadow over everything that we've just seen before so there as you said there's no moral certainty at the end of this episode which is very rare in murder she it's wrote. Like, very so rare I, I, yeah. And for that reason, I find it to be one of the most interesting and uh, unsettling episodes. Yes. Now, we've talked about the gender or the genre, and I think we should talk about gender, which is also bound up with, like, why we don't trust David and how we don't believe him. But um, we talked about how he wants to be Jessica's typist, and he actually has all of those skills. And Jessica's uh, at first, she's a little bit not sure that she's going to hire him because she... She says she just feels like she'd be more comfortable with a woman, which partly we're to believe is because of his attractiveness and his charisma. It's off-putting to her. It's, it's you know, mm-hmm. throwing her off her game. But also just that she has these sort of sexist preconceptions herself that um, a woman makes a better secretary. Yeah, and so it's that's what's, you know, so interesting um, about David as a character is that he is kind of playing with gender. And there is a sense in which he is, you know not always performing his gender as well as he as he might like but also is like he's just a, a gender as much as the episode itself is constructed along the morally ambiguous lines of noir he is troubling the the, the understandings of gender and profession he ultimately he tells jessica um surely you're not going to hold my gender against me right and i think that's a line that registers for her as like oh i'm i'm doing exactly what women hate when it gets done to them so she'll Mm -hmm. she does hire him later in the episode we also see something interesting where we're told that lila's ex-husband or soon to be ex-husband uh david says was abusive and that lila was trying to flee him and that's why she had turned to david and that turns out maybe not to be true at all uh jessica goes to interview him and find out more about him and he's he says oh, they weren't having an affair at all. They were just friends and I knew all about it and that wasn't an issue. And he actually seems like a pretty normal, reasonable guy. Uh, but what's interesting about that scene is that it happens while he's swimming laps in a swimming pool and Jessica's kneeling over the edge of the pool talking to him and he gets out of the pool and we get a full body shot of him mm-hmm. in his Speedos dripping wet. It's this total moment of male bodily exploitation, yep. um, which is also feeling. rare in Murder, She Wrote. Yep. So, yeah, I, I too had a moment of like, wow, this is some uh, some man- eye candy for, for, for Murder, She Wrote, which, is, as you say, is rather rare. But it also it plays into the um, the reversal of gender tropes that we see happening in this episode, right? That the the women are the ones with the money and power in this episode, which is not true of any other previous episode because we keep talking about the wealthy men who get murdered, mm-hmm. and here and then the men here are for the eye candy. Right. But speaking of uh, you know professions and such, I know you wanted to talk about uh, the way this episode maybe misrepresents academia and the academic life. So why don't you elaborate <laughs> a little bit on that, since you are our resident 
current academic. It's the bane of every academic's um, uh, existence that film and TV misrepresent university life so badly. And this episode is no exception. So we start with um, Peter Graves as Dean Edmund telling Jessica, like, I can't believe how successful you are. And she says, well, it's pretty prestigious for you. You're the dean of students. Um, And folks, like, Dean of Students carries the title Dean, but it's not actually that prestigious of an administrative position. It is a position in administration, so you get paid more than professors, but it's not actually that prestigious of a position at universities. Usually the Dean of Students is the one who has to deal with the students who get caught drinking on campus and such. Um, Then later we see Jessica giving her lecture, and I love it. It's the it's like the paradigmatic TV lecture. So the lecture hall's packed. Jessica has the students with rapt attention and she gets them all to figure out the murder based on all the clues she's telling us. And they all say the murderer's name out loud. Everybody laughs. Everybody applauds. And then a bell rings and they're all dismissed. And it's just so hilarious because um, if you know Mm -hmm. traditionally aged college students, so 18 to 22 year olds, um, they are perpetually bored. <laughs> they definitely don't applaud at the end of lectures. They are grateful to flee class. And this is not because I'm a bad teacher. I'm a very good teacher. Um, and we don't have bells because classes end at different times. So uh, it just it was funny to me, but it, we're supposed to see it as obviously, you know, a sign that Jessica is so good at um capturing audiences attention and storytelling and it's and she has a background as a school teacher that of course she is you know charming and wonderful to these students yeah that's a really good point and i also you know it's interesting then that her um, embrace of kind of the lecture person also is key to like showing how much her profession as a writer is shaping her understanding as like an investigator too definitely and uh, we and we are obviously supposed to contrast her with the one professor we do see, Professor Lowry, who attends her lectures. Um, we see him teaching once and the students are fewer and less engaged. And he's obviously mm-hmm. like kind of a bum compared to the more charismatic Jessica. The other representation of academia that I wanted to say was we, you know, so much of this episode hinges upon Amelia Lois Nettleton's uh, secret love for Edmund, the dean. Um, She's working as a secretary, and one of the major clues that begin the episode is that she's going through his credit card statements, and she teases him for making a purchase that she didn't think he should have made. And it raised questions for me because she's either inappropriately managing his personal finances when her job is to work on his professional stuff, or he's inappropriately seeking reimbursement from the university for personal expenses, and that's why she has this bill. But whatever it's the 1980s right so we all just sort of laugh off this moment and it becomes a clue that is later used for jessica to figure out that uh she's in love with him and she knows about his affair with lila right well there i mean going back to that what i said earlier the the moral turpitude of of this of this dean character they go to like a shady motel outside of the city of seattle it's just i don't know the whole thing is gross <laughs> everything about it is gross <laughs> we, we also have lois Nendleton pining after him and as a fan of 80s TV, I couldn't help but think, like, poor Lois Nettleton. She's always pining after people who can't return love for her, right? Because obviously, like, the the biggest fan memory of her is going to be Teach Of Golden Girls as Jean, Dorothy's lesbian friend who falls in love with Rose. Yeah. But I, I, I do think that there's something particular to Nettleton's performance. Because I've seen her in other 
earlier, yes. like, because um, she was also has played similar characters earlier in her career too. And yeah, she's very... a storied actor. I I just think that for many fans of a sure. of a particular ilk, right? It's it's Jean the lesbian is our reminder, but she's of course a very storied actor. Right, but it's um, what I'm getting at is that that's what makes her performances both Jean and this character so rich and so convincing is that there's just something part of it is her physical appearance that she has kind of like this fine boned sensitive like face like this a sensitivity to her features and it's about her performance her, her faintly breathy voice the kind of like the way that she delivers her lines i think that all of that kind of makes this performance feel authentic and it's also part of what gives Jean such a richly human appearance as well and it's she's again she's not one of those characters or one of those murderers that's evil it's just yeah. that she's deeply misguided and has, because of her kind of like uh, mousy personality, has not allowed her to be as open about her feelings as she should have been, which could have prevented all of this. Yeah, and it is important in the, you know, we said that the episode sort of leaves us with an open question mark as to David's culpability. Um, and that's part of its film noir sensibility. But uh, in film noir, we often either don't actually know the solution to a crime or the investigator has somehow become part of the crime during the course of investigating. They've become implicated. And so we often see someone setting up a fall guy and there's never actually a simple solution. Um, we should say, though, that the actual murder of Lila does have a simple and clear and very murder she wrote solution. Jessica approaches Amelia about it. Um, and she easily confesses, and she confesses mm -hmm. in tears. And so we do get that sort of really earnest murder she wrote sort of resolution in that sense. Yep. And so it is, uh, it's kind of moving in its own kind of sad way, because, you know, Edmund seems really kind of devastated that she did this. Like, I mean, obviously mm -hmm. he's morally questionable himself, but he seems like genuinely upset that she was the one who was responsible for murdering Lila. I'm not. Uh, yeah. And I think the fact that it's a woman murderer, again, plays into the episodes um, playing with genre. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not totally comfortable with the message that Amelia has killed Lila because she's in love with Edmund and he never realized it. Right. Like, think about the message that that's sending, right? Like, if someone is in love with you and you, you're so blind and stupid that you don't acknowledge it, you better watch out. Because she's going to kill your younger lover. She'll kill somebody. Yeah. I mean, that right. kind of, it's a retribution story that I'm, I'm just not okay with. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I think that's the point of the episode is to leave us feeling um, that the world is slightly out of joint. Even in, even Murder, She Wrote um, can be, you know, the world, the usual cozy, comfortable world of Murder, She Wrote can occasionally be put quite out of balance because of. It's noir sense. Noir, la la, noir. Ah, I can't speak. Noir <laughs> sensibilities. There we go. Say it. Say it three times fast. <laughs> so, noir sensibilities. There we go. In our NPR voice, noir sensibilities. In our NPR voice, and and yet, you know, so much of the episode was filmed uh, in the daytime. There's lots of shots of Jessica in front of windows with just tons of natural light pouring in. So while it is a really dark story, uh, visually in terms of its mise-en-scene and lighting and production, it's quite bright. It's quite mm -hmm. true to the murder she wrote look. Right. Uh, which is part of what makes it such a gem of an episode, really. Really is. It's hard to compare. It's hard to imagine them getting better, but we know that it will. So, You know, I hadn't, if you had asked me before we started the podcast to make a list of my 10 favorites, I wouldn't have put this on it, but it might be now. 
Yeah, I can see why. It's it is thematically rich and dense. As I it's like really to say. special. Yeah. And what are we talking about next week, Teach? Uh, that's a good question. What are we talking about next week? (laughs) (laughs) Next week, it's Hit Run Homicide. Uh, So we're back to the meat and potatoes of Murder, She Wrote. All right. Well, that sounds like fun. Um, Perhaps not as uh, exhaustive as this one, but sometimes we just need a little bit, as you say, a little bit of meat and potatoes to round out the palate. So So should we wrap this up? I think so. So thank you all for joining us for another fabulous episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. We definitely appreciate all of you who listen, who share, and who follow us on social media. So we will see you next week. Take care. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media, We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.